Amen. Morning, church. Daniel said, my name is Timothy, one of the pastors here. Some of you might have noticed pastors are wearing the baby blues today. We're going to try to color coordinate because that would be cute. Um, not sure how much that would help us as we try to grow our staff team, but that's how it worked out today. Um, I have the honor and privilege to give you a word this morning. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at the prophet Isaiah. Um, this is a section of scripture that has very much shaped me uh, into the man that I am today, and it continues to challenge and encourage me. Uh, I think this text is particularly fitting as we launch into the fall and as we seek to better accomplish the vision that God has laid before us as a church. Uh, a little background on our text, since we have not been in the book of Isaiah. Um, prophet Isaiah is speaking to God's people, here referred to as the house of Jacob. Uh, it's a pivotal time in the history of God's people. Prior to this chapter, uh, God's people had been captured by the Assyrians uh, because of their unfaithfulness. God allowed that to happen. And yet through King Hezekiah's faithfulness, God had freed them from the Assyrian control. And yet here in Isaiah 58, the prophet is speaking to those who have been freed but are falling back into their old ways and therefore are heading right back into oppression, this time by the hand of the Babylonians. So that's a little of the context, the historical context. Uh, we'll now uh, invite you to stand, if you're able, uh, for the reading of God's Word. This is Isaiah chapter 58. God says, Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgressions, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. God's people say here, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And God says, Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure. You oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast? Loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and to not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom shall be as a noonday. 
and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Father, you say in your word that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word endures forever. We need to hear from you this morning. Allow me, your servant, to get out of your way so that you might speak to us, so that we might be transformed because we have encountered you, the living God. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Have you ever done something nice and then after you did it realized that the only reason you were doing it because you thought you were going to get something nice in return? A few months ago, Stacy and I, my wife, were at a restaurant and we finished eating and I noticed that uh, the bill was much more pleasing than I had expected. Uh, we were at a nice restaurant and I had expected to do some damage to our bank account uh, that night and so as I began to look over the bill, I was pleasantly surprised. We had done pretty good. And then I looked more closely and I realized that something that was supposed to cost $28 uh, showed up on the bill as $2.80. Uh, so you just move the decimal place one space over. It's an easy mistake. But my conscience kicked in uh, and I felt compelled to tell the waitress what had happened. And when she saw the mistake, she quickly took the bill went to the manager and explained what was happening. I was feeling pretty good about myself. That's a nice guy thing to do, right? felt like I'd done a good deed. And then the waitress returns and hands me the corrected bill and says, here you go, I've got it fixed now. And she walked away. And after she left, I got a little upset. And I started to explain to Stacy how the waitress should have handled the situation. How restaurants should never add money back to the bill when they make a mistake. They can always be willing to take money off when they make a mistake, but should never add money back. That's how you run a business. Yeah, and I'm going on and on. I'm obviously perturbed by the whole thing. And what I realized afterward is that I actually did not tell the, ra the waitress about the bill because I thought it was the right thing to do. I told her because I thought uh, that she was going to give me something in return. I thought she was going to comp me the extra money. Uh, you see, my heart was all wrong uh, in it, evidenced by the fact that I pouted about it all the way home. We see something eerily sim similar here in Isaiah 58. Uh, the house of Jacob, God's people, they appear to be doing the right things, but for all the wrong reasons. Their actions seem in line with what God desires 
But for some reason, as verse 1 is going to make abundantly clear, God isn't buying it. And so as we enter into our text this morning, I want to highlight three things that our text reveals. First, God's rage. Second, second, God's rebuttal. And thirdly, God's remedy. God's rage, God's rebuttal, and God's remedy. Let's begin. Our text begins with a bang, doesn't it? God is giving some very specific instructions to the prophet. Now certainly all the words of the prophet are important because they're God's words. Uh, But here God is saying, Isaiah, this is particularly important. You need to speak up. You need to raise your voice because I really, really, really want my people to hear me this time. So clearly God's people have done something to make God particularly angry. But what is the cause of God's anger? Why is God so angry? And the answer to this question is kind of tricky. As I said before, on the surface, it appears as though the actions of the people are pretty good. Look with me at verse 2 and following. I'm going to read some of the things that God initially says about his people. Verse 2, he says, They seek me daily and delight to know my ways. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Sounds pretty good, right? You know, these are, these are things that I think we would all say. We would like for them to be true of ourselves. But the kicker comes in verse 4. Listen to what God says. Behold, you fast only to quarrel, and you fight and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. See, God is pinpointed. All their righteous deeds are done to make their voice be heard on high. They're doing deeds in order to pressure God to bless them, to prosper them. As Tim Keller says, they're doing good deeds in order to get God's stuff and not to get God. And in light of this, verse 3 begins to make sense. God's people are saying, God, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And you can hear their true heart in that statement. They're saying, God, we've done our part. We've been good. You know, we've fasted. We've done all these to-do list items. You need to bless us. Give us the goods, God, and do it now. So that's their posture. So coming back to our original question now, why is God so angry? And the subtle answer to this question is that God's anger is not caused by the people's manipulation attempts, which is why I would be angry if I was God. That's dirty, what you're doing there. I would be upset about that. But, but the reason God is angry is because the people's hearts are far from Him. That's what makes God angry. Church, you need to hear this. God's deepest longing is that our hearts would be fully His. That's what He desires. This is this common thread that we see throughout all of Scriptures. It's how both the Bible begins and ends. We see God's people fully satisfied in intimate relationship with Him. That's God's desire. That our hearts would be fully His. And that's why God tells His prophet to raise his voice not because the children are being naughty not because god's people are 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 
being disruptive, but because they've walked away from their first love. And God's angry. Church, we need to begin to press this application. And, and as we do, I want you to begin by examining your own hearts. I want you to ask yourself, is my heart fully God's? And as that question marinates, I want you to be encouraged by the fact that God longs for it to be His. He longs more than anything else in the world for your heart to be His because He's totally captivated by you. He is seeking after, chasing after your heart. Which brings us to our second point this morning, God's rebuttal. So a rebuttal is a counter-argument, right? It's when uh, you pick apart the argument that has been made by your opposition. But what's the argument that God is rebutting here in Isaiah 58? Church, this is brilliant, the way God does this. He, he's rebutting an argument that hasn't even been spoken. It's an argument that God knows is in, the, is in the minds of everybody that's listening, but they haven't even said it. So you see in God's opening statement, he said that he's angry. He's furious that his people are just going through emotions just checking the boxes, that they're pretending to be pious in order to pressure God to do what they want. And you can almost hear between the lines here the people crying out like my children sometimes do. They're saying, no, no, we're not, God. We mean it. We're, we really do mean it. We're, we're not just doing these things to get what we want. We really do love you, God, and we really are being pious because we're in love with you. Not so you'll give us stuff. And God knows that that counter-argument is going on in everyone's minds. And so he speaks to it before it's even spoken. He knows it because he knows that we're broken, sinful people. And that it's, it's our sinful nature to defend ourselves when we're accused of something, isn't it? Maybe that's just me, I don't know. But I, I feel like that's true of us as human beings. So God, knowing the hearts of the people he begins to rebut the argument, and he does it in this most peculiar way. Look with me at verse 6. He says, Is this not the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? It's a little bit subtle here, but what God is doing here, He's pointing out to His people that if their hearts were truly His, if, if their hearts were truly His, it would primarily not manifest itself in these rituals and sacrifices. But if our heart is God's, it will manifest itself in a love for things that God loves. Amen? When our heart is God's, we begin to love what He loves and hate what He hates. Namely, here we begin to love the least of these. God is saying, the reason that I know your heart is not mine is because it's not possible to love me and not have a deep social conscience. One commentator says it this way, one of the unique features of biblical faith is that there is no genuine relation with God that is not at the same time a relation with the brother. Did you hear that? 
an intimate relationship with God inevitably produces a heart for the poor, for the outcast, for the homeless, for the widow. Or said conversely, if our heart is not burdened by the disenfranchised among us, then we should be concerned about the vitality of our relationship with God. Church, can I push this a little bit? Just this morning, uh, the lady who cleans here at this building, her name is Trisha, and she shared with me how yesterday she was handcuffed and take, taken downtown and did nothing wrong. It was do- and that this happened to her because of the color of her skin. Okay, that stuff doesn't happen to me. That should anger us, church. That should make us angry. Not angry like we sit and, and stoop over it, but angry like we do something about it. That's what the gospel does to us. It produces a heart that is angry about the injustices in this world. God is making an irrefutable argument here. He says, because you are not engaged in loosing the bonds of the wickedness, undoing the straps of the yoke, helping to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke, because you are not sharing your bread with the hungry, bringing the homeless poor into your home, clothing the naked, and because you hide yourself from your own flesh and blood, from those whom I created in my image, because of these things, I know for a fact that your heart is not mine. Church, we need to let that truth settle in. It's heavy. That's heavy truth, isn't it? Not one of us in this room does not feel the weight of that. We need to sit in the reality that our lack of social conscience, our lack of heart for the poor is evidence that our heart is not fully, it's not fully God's. Church, let the word cut you. Cut you to your heart. Don't shake it off. Don't make excuses. But allow God's word to press on you this morning. This message was written thousands of years ago and it applies just as much today as it did then. Brings us to our third and final point this morning. This is the good news. It's God's remedy. One of the purposes of this text was reveal the sinfulness of God's people. As we just saw, not only was this written to reveal the sin of God's people thousands of years ago, but it also reveals the sin of us today. But what is God's remedy for those of us who stand condemned in our wandering, selfish hearts? And just like in much of the Old Testament, the answer is somewhat veiled, but becomes more and more clear as the book of Isaiah continues. And where the answer lies here is in the dichotomy that the prophet makes between fasting and Sabbath. This is the beautiful um, wordplay that he does here. You see, fasting is obviously a time of no food at all. We get that. Whereas the Sabbath was considered a day of feasting. It's an overwhelming abundance of food. And God is saying to his people, you got all cut up in the discipline of fasting and you totally missed the point. You missed the point of the whole thing. He said you should have gotten caught up in this, in this idea of Sabbath. Not because Sabbath is, is some more noble ritual than fasting, but because of what the Sabbath stands for. Because of what it's all about. Look at verses 13 and 14. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from, your, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight... And the holy day of the Lord honorable, 
if you honor it not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. See, church, the Sabbath exists as a celebration. It's a time where God calls his people together and then... And it, together relish in our relationship with God. It's not an empty ritual. It's a party. It's meant to be a delight. It's meant to be a celebration. So, church, do you see God's remedy for our wayward hearts? It's worship. The remedy is worship. It's coming together as a family and being reminded of His goodness and faithfulness. And when we gather together and we hear the word preached and we enjoy the sacrament and we enjoy the fellowship of one another, our hearts are drawn back to Him. Amen? Church, our, God's remedy for our wayward sins are what we call the means of grace. His remedy is the weekly gathering of His people, the preaching of the word, and the administration of the sacraments. It seems simple, but it's good. It's God's good gifts that he uses to draw our hearts back to himself. Gifts that are not to be taken for granted. We're not just supposed to come and check the box. We're supposed to enjoy and delight in these things. These gifts are things that we're supposed to prepare for, that we're supposed to long for, that we're supposed to wait for with bated breath, like a child does for Christmas morning. Church, do you arrive on Sunday morning expecting to receive good gifts from God? Good gifts that will win your heart back to Him. Heart, gifts that will cause our hearts to sing and worship. In conclusion, church, I want to wrap this up and put a pretty little bow on it for you. This is your take-home, party favor, if you will. Uh, what we see here in this text is a beautiful picture of the rhythm of of the Christian life. This is worth waking up for if you've snoozed off. The Christian life is a cycle that repeats itself over and over and over again. Think of it as a circular path that we're always on. I'm not big on formulas when it comes to the Christian life. Don't think of this as a Joel Osteen's Six Steps to Happiness, but, but, but more as a rough draft. Uh, this is a napkin sketch, if you will, of the heart's journey as we seek to walk with Christ and to be faithful. And remember what I said earlier, the underlying premise, the foundation that upholds this cycle is God's ultimate desire. That His desire, is, His deepest longing is that our hearts would be fully His. God's passionate about winning your heart. So here's the picture, here's the take-home. At the top of the circle, this is what we see in the text, God graciously reveals to us His people that are not fully His. He does this through His Word. Just like in Isaiah 58, God's Word exposed to, exposes our hearts. It exposes that our hearts are far from Him. And the way that God does this is He exposes our sin. He shows how we have not lived up to God's righteous standard. Our sin is the litmus test. It's the ongoing evidence that our heart is not God's. Just like how God's people in Isaiah 58 had a lack of concern for the poor, and, and that revealed that God's, their hearts were not God's, so does all of our sin. All of our sin points to a wayward heart. 
So that's the top of the circle. God, in his longing for our hearts, reveals our sin to us through his word, which is the evidence that our hearts are not his. And then here on the side of the circle, once our sin has been exposed, God, through his, his word, calls us not to perform, but to repent. Amen? Not to perform, but to repent. His word has cut us, and it's wounded us, and God invites us in our woundedness and brokenness to cry out to the one who can heal us. It's so easy to get derailed here, church. We so often feel that brokenness and woundedness, and we, and we want to try to save ourselves. We want to try to fix it. We want to try to do some more good deeds to outweigh the bad, be good enough. And when we do this, we miss the whole point. God is inviting us to cry out to Him, the one who can save us. So when He reveals our sin, we run to Him. We don't run to good deeds. We run to Him. And He heals us. He saves us. So that's the second, second phase of the cycle, if you will. It's repentance and faith in the one who can save us. Then He brings us to the bottom of the circle, and it's here that God hears our cries, and He receives us, and He pardons us. And He does this through the work of Jesus Christ. Listen to the prophecy found in the very next chapter. This is so beautiful, Isaiah 59. It says, He, God, saw that there was no man, no one righteous, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for his clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Church, this was written so long before Christ came. But it's such a beautiful picture. God said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take the penalty. I'm going to do that which you cannot do. I'm going to rescue you, and I'm going to do it through my son Jesus. So we cry out to God, the one who can save us, and he saves us through his son Jesus Christ and welcomes us back into relationship with him. That's the bottom of the circle, and it brings us over here to the left side as we come around. And it's here that God's grace and mercy produces something in us. It's here that God's grace and mercy allows us to see the reality of the cross and the forgiveness that has been given, and it does something to us. It changes our hearts. When the reality of what Christ has done lands, we become different. Our hearts are filled with love and gratitude, and the result is worship. It's what happens when that penny drops, we are compelled to worship. That's the power of the gospel. It changes hearts. You hear that, church? God changes us. Now, so often we stop right here, but it's a circle, right? We have to come all the way back around. Can't shortstop here with worship. And this is so key because if we stop right here, our text really doesn't carry much weight, does it? Just about worship, then the text doesn't matter. If it's just about worship, then, then the message of Isaiah 58 is this. God's saying, I wish your heart was mine. I know it's not mine because of the way you treat the least of these. Yet I forgive you, and in that forgiveness, win your heart back to me, and I produce worship too bad for the poor. Oh well for the least of these. If we stop here, that's what the text says. But that's not the message of Isaiah 58. God finishes with saying, I've won your heart to me, now I release you into the obedient life with a heart full of worship and a genuine longing to be like me. A heart 
gospel of worship that propels us, Isaiah 58, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke, to share our bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into our home, to clothe the naked, and to not hide ourselves from our own flesh and blood. That's what worship produces in us. God sends us out with hearts that have been renewed and more and more begin to love the things that he loves and hate the things that he hates. That's why it's a cycle. When our hearts are fully his, God's word no longer cuts us, but it fuels us. It propels us on this journey, this journey to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. At the same time, church, we should rest in the fact that that the the Christian life is a cycle. It repeats itself. And our hearts are prone to wander. Our worship, church, I'm sorry to say, but our worship will become about us again. We will once again be doing things to get God to bless us, to try to manipulate and pressure God. And God will graciously start the cycle over again. Do you see that? He will reveal to us our sin again, and He will draw us back to Himself. We'll cry out to Him again and experience His forgiveness and grace, and then He will send us out as those who are forgiven to do His work. Seems simple, church, right? It's the rhythm of the Christian life, but it's so easy to get out of rhythm. Might we begin to settle into this rhythm, this rhythm of the gospel, And might it produce in us this joyful obedience in our hearts and that our hearts might become fully His over and over and over again. That's why the Sabbath reference is so key. Because the Sabbath is not a one-stop shop. God knows that we're prone to wander, so He invites us back over and over and over again. And He wins our hearts each and every time. That's good news, church. Amen? Amen? Let's pray.